last sort of really big investment in clean energy that we had was the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act back in 2009. And this is more than that. And this is more than that in clean energy specifically. So, you know, it is it is historic. It's the biggest investment we've ever had in clean energy at the federal level. Um, and so I think it, it is going to be a very big deal. Amid a brutal war in Ukraine, high inflation, an ongoing pandemic, confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice, stalled reconciliation bill, and upcoming election, it's easy to forget that Congress passed a historic $1.2 billion infrastructure bill last year with bipartisan support. The bill contains more than $80 billion to advance the clean energy transition and fight climate change, including funding for nationwide electric vehicle charging networks and bus fleets, power grid modernization, energy efficiency, and more. On this episode, we look at how those funds are starting to roll out in states across the country. Plus, what's next for President Biden's climate agenda amid soaring gas prices and a push for greater energy independence through more oil and gas production? We discuss on this episode of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. Now, before we get into today's show, I want to highlight that Canary is hosting a live event with Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico on Tuesday, April 26th, where they'll discuss clean energy in a time of global conflict and other topical issues. And we know Senator Heinrich is a great interview because we've had him on the podcast in the past. So be sure to sign up via the link in our show notes. Also, please fill out our Political Climate listener survey and enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. It takes just a few minutes and really helps us learn more about our audience and how to improve the show. So thank you, thank you. So this week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton, our usual co-hosts, are out this week. So joining me on the mics is Maria Virginia Alano, who's usually behind the scenes helping produce our show and make it all possible. Maria Virginia, it's great to have you on. How you doing? Hello, hello. I'm excited to be here. Um, it's been great. Yeah, I went from being a huge fan of the show uh, since you guys started to helping produce it. And now I'm here. So this is great. Yeah, well, your help is absolutely essential. I uh, really appreciate um, you and the entire Canary team that supports political climate. And this is nothing really new to you. You used to host your own podcast called Cooler Earth. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? I did. Yeah, I did that for a few years in my previous role. And it was really fun. It was really just having conversations with the people behind the climate movement. Uh, so everyone from activists to journalists to academics, uh, really talking about what what drives them, what what brought them into the movement and what they do now. Um, so I've been really passionate about podcasting for a while. Yeah. Well, we will be continuing those discussions in this conversation today with our guest who is an advocate for a lot of the issues driving the clean energy transition. We're going to be joined in a moment by Leah Rubin Shen, who leads federal legislative and political engagement on wholesale markets at Advanced Energy Economy and co-leads AWE's Advanced Energy Manufacturing and Infrastructure Working Group. She also supports AWE's legislative and regulatory engagement in Western states. So with that, let's turn now to our interview with Leah. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. 
The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So before we get into the meat of the episode, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your role at Advanced Energy Economy and what it is that Advanced Energy Economy works on. You guys have a bunch of different topics that you're tracking across several states. So could you just give us a bit of background? Sure. So I basically wear two hats here at Advanced Energy Economy. And Advanced Energy Economy is a multi-technology clean energy trade association. Uh, We represent over 100 business members that do everything from developing new solar and wind projects installing rooftop solar, energy efficiency, demand response programs, energy storage, electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And then we have a handful of members who are um, themselves large buyers or consumers of, of energy, and they have ambitious sustainability goals. So they're interested in policies that can help them meet those goals. I run our federal political and legislative engagement, um, so have been very involved in tracking the discussions around reconciliation and as well as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And then I also do a lot of work um, in our state's engagement. We engage in about a dozen states around the country. Um, I'm primarily focused in the West. And so as we're having conversations with lawmakers about implementing the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, now this year, I'm also involved in a lot of those discussions. I want to start with a conversation about something that is top of mind for for many people now as we watch the news. Uh, We've all seen Russia's war on Ukraine and the conflict that has really brought up in global supply chains and around the future of secure energy resources. And it's really prompted this broader debate for the U.S. and whether it needs to get off of foreign oil or perhaps produce more domestic oil and gas. And so as part of that, there's also discussion around clean energy resources and what role they have to play in securing our energy future. In this context, do you think that the U.S. could end up backtracking on its climate goals? We're again seeing clean energy come up as a solution to the geopolitical issues we're facing today at the same time as more domestic fossil fuels. So I'm wondering how you're thinking about, you know, 30,000 foot, where we stand on U.S. decarbonization. No, that's a great question. And I I do think President Biden has a really tough political challenge here. Um, I mean, gas prices have risen a ton and they're continuing to rise we're in the middle of a transition to more electric vehicles, but most people are still driving cars that that use gasoline. Um, I'm not sure I'd say that we're really at risk of taking a step back, though. Um, the president has taken some steps in the right direction. Uh, he's invoked the Defense Production Act to shore up critical mineral supplies for energy storage, for example. Um, and while there might be some you know, benefit to expanding oil and gas production in terms of alleviating pain in the short term, it's not really a long-term solution and it doesn't address the underlying problem. If this crisis has made one thing clear, it's that we really need real economic energy independence. More domestic production of fossil fuels does not get us there. Uh, We're going to continue to be tied to global commodities markets for oil and increasingly natural gas. 
And a war abroad will still raise our prices. So what we need to do is shift to energy that isn't tied to these kinds of markets, but is instead tied to technologies, things like solar and wind and battery storage. We did have an episode recently where we looked at that. And there are some challenges, though, even with the clean energy side. Yeah, we know that it's not just fossil fuels that are produced globally and imported to create the energy resources that we need, but also the clean energy supply chain, as you just alluded to. Uh, What do you think are some of the steps that the U.S. needs to take right now to boost domestic clean energy manufacturing and that kind of security long term? Yeah, so I think the question we should be asking ourselves is what really creates that market that's necessary to incentivize domestic manufacturing? That market needs to be consistent, robust, and resilient. Uh, And we see three things as being really critical for making that happen. So one is that tariffs are not a substitute for industrial policy. They're inconsistent. They change. It's hard to predict. And trying to use tariffs and border controls as a substitute for that is really the wrong approach. Secondly, we should be focusing on both production-based incentives and incentives that will boost demand. Those are the robust policies that we need. And both of those things are part of the reconciliation discussions. And then longer term, we really do need to talk about critical minerals and our supply around that. That's part of the resilience approach. And we really see this as an opportunity for bipartisan consensus. Uh, There's a bill that you may be familiar with, um, led by Senator Lankford, that would, would have the U.S. partner more with our allies to promote shared investment and development of these materials. And I think things like that um, really show that there could be bipartisan consensus around the need to develop more of these critical minerals, either here at home or in countries where we share a lot of um, the same foreign policy aims. So you mentioned this bill on critical resources getting bipartisan support, but we are in a difficult political climate, as we've named our show. Uh, What do you think the opportunity for something like that to pass looks like? Yeah, so I think there is a really good opportunity to pass things like that as part of uh, the National Defense Authorization Act. That's something that comes up every year in Congress. They always authorize a big defense bill. And things that are related to our national security and are really key for our national security, like these kinds of policies, could definitely pass as, as part of a package like that. I also think that we may see you know, a shift in Washington post the elections in November. Um, and sometimes those shifts can actually wind up resulting in more bipartisanship and more opportunities to get like things like this done. You didn't say it, but I'm hearing if Republicans uh, take more control, as some are expecting, it could actually lead to more bipartisanship because the power dynamics have shifted there in the driver's seat. And so those maybe on the sidelines not wanting to give Democrats a win, but generally support the concept might get in line. Am I putting words in your mouth? Is that directionally correct? No, I think that's exactly. Yeah, that, that's directionally correct. That's what I'm saying. Um, I think there's a there's a, a tendency when parties are in the minority in Congress and particularly when there's also a president who who is not of their party. They just want to fight things. They want to resist everything. We saw this with Democrats in the first couple of years of the Trump administration. We're seeing it now with Republicans in the first couple of years of the Biden administration. But when you have a Congress that is either partly or wholly led by one party and a president from the other party, I think then, you know, everyone, it's sort of an everyone's shared interest to kind of move things forward where they can find shared agreement. And so I think it does open up more opportunities like that. One other thing I wanted to key in on that you just mentioned is tariffs. And, you know, if you're in the solar industry right now, you're very worried about this Oxen case, which adds tariffs to about 80% of the global supply chain for solar panels. And we've already seen some companies have to face fines. It could really hurt that deployment side, which you talked about earlier. What do you think about cases like that? Does advanced energy economy uh, help weigh in on those issues? What do you think that looks like? 
So I think, you know, the first thing is that we are seeing these tariffs having a real short-term disruption to the market. It's causing a pretty significant problem across the solar industry. It's raising prices for consumers. Um, and it's definitely something that, you know, companies who work in the space are very concerned about. I think the thing that we would say first and foremost is this isn't a good way to build a domestic industrial base. This policy doesn't solve the issue of wanting to boost our domestic production. It's just another tax. And it really just, at the end of the day, domestic consumers bear the costs. And if this is the policy now, this is the other thing, you know, what happens in two to three years? What happens with the new administration? What happens if another case like this comes up? Uh, factories are long-term investments, and we really need clear and stable policy to drive those kinds of investments. If manufacturers don't think there's going to be a market in five years, say, or even in, in 10 years, they might not choose to make those investments now. And if, you know, if the, if the near-term opportunity is created by tariffs, that's not enough of an incentive for, for manufacturers to onshore production here. You and some of your colleagues have written about using the Defense Production Act uh, to support domestic and EV battery manufacturing. Um, how do you see this playing out? Is this something that could be done and how could it be used to meet plans for clean energy goals here domestically? Yeah, so the Defense Production Act allows the president broad powers to harness private industry to work with the federal government in the interest of national security. So again, it's a short-term solution to a problem, but it could help us you know, produce more of these things sort of in the near term. A couple of weeks ago, President Biden invoked the DPA to order more domestic production of minerals and materials that make up battery storage, both for EVs as well as stationary storage. Uh, and in his order, the president stated, and we would agree with this, that right now the, the U.S.'s reliance on unstable foreign sources for critical minerals that are essential for battery storage, and that such storage is critical for our national defense and our critical infrastructure. So this order is about producing more here and in coordination with our allies, similar to the goals of that um, Langford bill that I mentioned. Right. We, we've called for the president to expand the use of the DPA um, beyond this initial order um, to help strengthen national security and help us accelerate the clean energy transition. So first, we think he should use it to expand domestic polysilicon production for use in solar panels, uh, next generation batteries and microchips. We also think he should use it to ramp up production of appliances like heat pumps or induction cooktops and ductless mini splits. Uh, these are all things that we could export to Europe to help them electrify their homes and businesses before next winter, which would cut demand for Russian gas. And third, we think this could be used to accelerate the deployment of more energy efficiency software, also first in Europe, but again, also here at home, that will help buildings be more efficient in their energy use. So reducing the overall demand for energy would reduce, again, reliance on oil and gas where we're still using it, and then also just reduce the amount of energy that's needed overall. Yeah, and I think that's something that's been written about quite a lot since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Bill McKibben had a very famous big piece on it, and a lot of people have been thinking about how it could be used. Uh, but what do you think, you mentioned it's pretty short term, but what do you think are some other concerns or criticisms of this approach? The approach, the using the Defense Production Act? Yeah. I think some of the criticism stems from really thinking through whether the scale is there to actually meet U.S. geopolitical goals on this global level in the time frame needed versus, as we said at the top of this episode, people still do drive a lot of gas-powered vehicles, for instance. They do still heat their homes with, you know, gas from Russia if you live in Europe. And so there are voices out there that say we are actually disconnected from reality if we think that those types of solutions like heat pumps for peace will be enough in time to meet you know, say a geopolitical goal we have to quell Russia's aggression. So what do you think about that and sort of the timelines and what's truly realistic? And does it at all hurt the clean energy movement if it seems to disassociate it from the real needs of the consumer today? 
I think a thing that I would say is sort of true across the board in energy policies, there is no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet to any immediate problem. There's not really a silver bullet to sort of the long-term transition. This is one of those situations where we need, you know, all hands on deck, all technologies, all policy tools in our toolbox to help both address our short-term concerns and crisis, as well as meet our goals in the long term. And so I think we should be thinking about use of the Defense Production Act as just one of many tools in the toolbox that will help us um, accelerate the energy transition. So how would that fit with, say, a reconciliation bill, which has measures in it for things like domestic manufacturing of solar products, etc.? Would that complement or sort of replace? Is this another way to get some of those strategic goals met through the Defense Production Act versus a reconciliation bill? So I think when we're thinking about, you know, sort of incentives for manufacturing, we need to think about a couple of different things. First of all, there's stuff that we already make here. And so something like the Defense Production Act could help there because we're just scaling up production that already exists. Um, But in some cases, we really do need to onshore more of our production here, more of the final assembly or more of the supply chains for some of these these technologies. And this is where I think the reconciliation bill can really help. Um, We see incentives in there for both investment tax credit for manufacturing. So I need to build a new factory. This policy will give me a tax credit to do that. It will lower the overall cost of my investment. And then there's also production tax credits for some specific technologies. There's one for solar. There's bills for both onshore and offshore wind turbines or the components that go into them. And then there's, uh, it's not included right now, but there is sort of discussion around maybe including something similar for batteries. Um, and something like that is not only going to, you know, now I've now I've I've got a factory that I've invested in and I've reduced the overall cost of that factory, but I also can now reduce the sort of per widget cost for everything I produce with that factory. And those are the kinds of things that I think over the long term are really going to help us onshore more and more uh, of these technologies and the supply chains associated with them. What a cool vision to think about, like revitalize manufacturing hubs, like thinking of those parts of America now that are maybe less populated because of, you know, the time in history where we shifted away from building things here at home and just allow myself sometimes to think about what that'd be like to have those humming again. It would be an amazing moment, I think. Um, So we do want to ask, though, about the infrastructure bill. This is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. As people will know, there was controversy among Democrats as to whether they should have prioritized this over a reconciliation bill or should they have linked the two together last fall? Of course, they decided not to. And the infrastructure bill ultimately passed. And now it's sort of been swept under the rug for all intents and purposes. Uh, There was news coverage, of course, but now it's sort of been quiet save for the fact that it's bubbling up again now as this becomes more real. The funds are starting to roll. So could you just kick us off in this part of the discussion of what is the infrastructure bill? Remind us what it was and some of the key elements there that are important to the clean energy transition. Absolutely. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, um, sometimes called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or people will call it EJA, uh, it passed last November. It was a mix of funding for both existing and new programs. Um, And it's really a wide-ranging bill. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that has nothing to do with energy. There's highway funding, there's drinking water funding, there's funding for broadband expansion and infrastructure. Um, But there are some also really key components of that bill that are helpful in accelerating the energy transition and in fighting climate change. So we think of those in four different buckets, basically. One is electrifying transportation. Two is energy efficiency. Three is grid infrastructure, making our grid more resilient and also making expanding it where necessary. And then the fourth is advanced energy manufacturing, which of course ties very nicely into the conversation that we're having already. So like I said, the bill passed in November Funding for a lot of those programs that already existed is getting out the door more quickly, but it's been a little bit quiet. Um, It's kind of just, you know, these are programs that states 
are used to receiving funding from, you know, sometimes there's new guidance from the administration, sometimes there's new eligibilities for the, the program funding, but it's been a little bit quieter. But, you know, as we're coming up into mid-May, which is the six-month deadline of when the program, when the bill originally passed, I think we're going to start to see a lot more programs come out the door because uh, there's a lot of deadlines and statute that 180 days after the bill passes, the administration has to, you know, create a new program that does this. Um, so we're going to see, I think, a lot more activity uh, next month and then over the summer around all of this. Just to follow up on that, how historic is this sum of money? I think it was on the order of $1.2 trillion at the end of the day. So you're saying these are existing programs, but is this going to be a real market shaper or changer for these states as the infrastructure dollars roll out? I really think it will be because, you know, some of these programs, like I said, are existing, but even for the ones that already exist, the amount of funding that the programs are getting is a lot more than they've gotten historically. Um, the last sort of really big investment in clean energy that we had was uh, the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act back in 2009. And this is more than that. And this is more than that in clean energy specifically. So, you know, it is it is historic. It's the biggest investment we've ever had in clean energy at the federal level. Um, and so I think it, it is going to be a very big deal. And some of these programs, maybe it's a small amount of money overall, but if it's something that a state's never done before, and now they have funding to do it, that also could be a real game changer. Yeah, and I will point people to the Roadmap for State Implementation from AEE, which I found super helpful in breaking down kind of what, what all of this means. Uh, we'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Uh, but Leah, do you think you can maybe paint a picture of a real life implication for people? How are people going to feel this, some of this funding in their everyday lives? And as Julia was saying, it's huge that this happened. It's huge that it happened in a bipartisan basis, and yet the new cycle seemed to have moved on really quickly. Um, so how do you think this is actually going to be felt in, in people's lives? Yeah. So one example I would point to is the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure uh, Formula Grant Program. Not a particularly sexy title, very long, very cumbersome, but real. Like what, what this really means is I want to go on a road trip and I have an electric vehicle. And I want to get from, you know, where I live in California to Illinois. And I have to go through a lot of states to get there. And maybe there aren't a lot of electric vehicle chargers along my route right now. This funding, the NEVI program funding, it will enable all of those states to build out that infrastructure network, that charger network, so that now I can feel comfortable buying an electric vehicle and knowing that I can get anywhere I need to go um, and have a charger along the way. So that's one example. Another example is there's um, funding in the bill for all kinds of upgrades at public schools. Everyone's got a public school in their community. Lots of people either have children of their own that they send to public schools or they know kids, you know, a, a friend's child or a niece or nephew who goes to a public school. There's funding in the bill to do all kinds of improvements to these public schools, energy efficiency upgrades, installing renewable energy, which can save the school's money, um, which that's money that they can reinvest back into the classroom and electrifying their school bus fleets. So those are the kinds of things also that, you know, they may seem very far away. Oh, Washington, D.C., somebody passed a bill. You know, what is this funding really going to look like? But when it shows up at my local public school, that's a real tangible uh, example of what this funding could do for somebody in their community. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. 
But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the clean tech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in clean tech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Yeah, I was just reading through that roadmap that Maria Virginia mentioned, and it talks about this infrastructure bill providing $234 billion for buses and bus facilities, competitive grants, including $375 million for the low and no emissions programs. So just to emphasize what you're saying, there's these real world dollars going out for healthier transportation for children. But I do have to wonder, the states have to take some agency in this, right? They have to apply for funds. And they're usually, from what I can tell from your roadmap, there's a mix of a federal match and then a non-federal match. And so it requires some initiative. First of all, how much of a lift is that for states? And how do we ensure that states are not being left out of the process? Because maybe they don't have those resources. They're a smaller state or they have never done this before. So how do we make sure these dollars are actually being accessed in an equitable way across the country? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's part of what we were trying to address with our roadmap. We really wanted it to be a guide for state policymakers to think about what are the buckets of funding that are in here? How do they align with policy goals I'm trying to achieve in my state? You know, what's the federal agency I have to talk to? What is the match? Is this competitive funding? Do I have to apply for it? Is it formula funding? Just kind of answer all of those questions for for each program um, that, you know, is in there for clean energy so that they could, you know, kind of have a one-stop shop for all of that information. I will say that as we're talking to, you know, states about this funding and about sort of the implementation of the bill, you know, they all have different priorities. They all have different concerns. Obviously, every state is different. But across the board, I will say that the one consistent thing is everyone's really enthusiastic about this funding. You know, I think we were sort of concerned early on that there might be some resistance from some states. They don't want to accept federal funds. They don't want to invest in these kinds of programs. But that hasn't been the case. Really, you know, everyone is is excited, you know, maybe they have different perspectives on, you know, again, how they should spend the money, but they all want the money to come to their states and to their communities. And on the state match front, you know, I can't speak for all 50 states, but I think, again, the states we've been talking to, a lot of them actually have budget surpluses right now. You know, Congress passed some significant COVID relief packages. You know, a lot of that funding was aimed at helping states prop up their budgets, and it's been very successful. So a lot of the states actually have extra money to play with right now, which is great. They can use it for that match. 
they can also use it to extend some of these policies and programs, you know, beyond what the federal money might be able to provide to, you know, kind of make the dollars go even further. Is that enthusiasm reflected across red and blue states? One of the criticisms you'll hear in news publications around the reconciliation bill, for instance, is there's policies in there that are disproportionately going to benefit blue states that have already maybe leaned further into the energy transition, specifically on the climate and energy topics we cover. So in the interest of challenging our assumptions, is this inequitable for red states, given that the clean energy focus of the infrastructure bill could be more easily accessed by states that are already on that trajectory? I don't think it's necessarily inequitable for red states. Um, I you know I think again we see in both red and blue states, you know, the governors and and the legislators and you know sort of the key policymakers in the state excited and enthusiastic about the funding and and really wanting to make sure that they can get their hands on it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's also helpful is this bill has a lot of stuff in it for all kinds of infrastructure. And some of those types of infrastructure may be a little less controversial or polarizing. Um, you know, I personally don't think clean energy should be controversial, but sometimes it is. But highway funding is pretty universally acceptable. Everyone's excited about broadband. Usually drinking water is not particularly partisan either. So I think the fact that the whole package just looks like it's going to help the state bring its infrastructure into the 21st century uh, really helps with that acceptance. 100% support for clean drinking water. I think that is a thing we can all agree on. And, you know, I'm just thinking this in real time. Maybe the fact that this bill has had a little less fanfare around it, the fact it was bipartisan sort of neutralizes some of the debates that we see come up around reconciliation where it's more owned by one side or the other. Um, infrastructure maybe avoided some of that conflict. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think the fact that, that the bill was bipartisan, that, you know, governors of, of red states and blue states can sort of point to a lawmaker in their state that voted for it and say, hey, this bipartisan bill was supported by my delegation, um, I think is really helpful. Yeah, it's great to hear that there is enthusiasm and support for infrastructure. Um, that being said, wh where do you see some of the challenges or the gaps between the funding that exists and actually putting those dollars to work or, or getting started in some of those projects? Yeah, that's a great question. So to take the NEVI program again as an example, um, because the states will have to submit a plan for how they're going to spend those dollars by August. And, you know, different states are sort of in different places with respect to what EV infrastructure planning looks like in that state. Some states have a very robust roadmap. Some states basically don't have anything. So there is a there is a challenge and they're all kind of thinking about, OK, how do I want to spend this money? Um, it's millions of dollars you know, what am I going to do with it? And how do I write this roadmap or, or, or this, um, this plan that I can submit to the federal government to get that money? I think the states that are really doing this right are having lots of conversations between different parts of their, their state government. Um, so the state DOT, the state energy office, or maybe the environmental protection office, um, and their public utility commission all need to be in, involved in these conversations. And so when they're having those conversations, I think it's really helpful because, you know, state DOTs are not usually EV experts, and they're certainly not EV infrastructure experts. And so bringing in those other areas of expertise in the state to help them kind of write this plan and make those decisions is really helpful. I also think that something that states should be doing, and many are doing that is helpful, is conducting stakeholder processes to the extent that they can. Um, you know, if, if it's not something you've done before as a state, there's probably people in your state that have opinions about it, and you don't have to take those opinions at face value, but at least getting a sense of what those things are. What do your community, you know, organizations think about this? What do your public health organizations think? What do your industry groups think? What do your universities think and the experts at those universities? You know, every state has folks like this. And so to the extent that they can outsource some of those questions by drawing in the expertise from folks outside the state government, I think that's really helpful. 
Yeah, and it's actually funny to see how this bill that gets splashed all over the news and headlines at one point in time kind of plays out in these small conference rooms, right? And people just getting together and figuring out where the dollars go. So that's the phase we're at now. And I know you're part of those conversations. Um, I do want to ask about one other specific element of the infrastructure bill because it's uh, near and dear to my heart. And that's the around $3.5 billion for low-income home weatherization programs and the more than $1 billion in funding for improving the efficiency of buildings. We talked a little bit about transportation. Can you weigh in on the building side of this? And where does that program stand? Is there equal enthusiasm around it as, say, some of the other elements of the infrastructure bill? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so the the low-income home weatherization program, as you probably know, is... An existing program, so states already have sort of processes in place and and folks on the ground who are implementing those dollars. The change, of course, is that there's a lot more money now to go around. I know that one thing that that came out of the Recovery Act process around this program is states felt like there a lot of pressure to spend the money all really quickly, and that was pretty difficult. So my understanding is that this time around, they're going to have a little more of a a lead time, or they're going to have a little more time overall to sort of get the dollars out the door. One thing that I'm really excited about in the weatherization assistance program is that the administration's making it now available to be used for building electrification as well. And I think this is really key. Saving energy by weatherizing your home is is a really critical part of lowering your energy bills overall. But electrification is also really helpful in, in lowering your energy bills. I mean, if you can switch from a gas furnace to a heat pump, for example, particularly if you have air conditioning in your home as well, you're saving a ton of money just by switching the technology. And so, you know, I think energy efficiency and electrification working together are going to be really important for not only decarbonizing our building stock, but then also making sure that we're saving as much money in the process. Yeah, that actually goes back to the beginning of this conversation, right? And getting off of fossil fuels for our, you know, broader strategic goals as a country, but also for the everyday savings goals that we have. Rewiring America is a great organization, and they did some calculations and noted that to replace uh, the oil-fired equipment in around 5.3 million American households with electric heat pumps would eliminate the consumption of 71 million barrels of oil and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 31 million metric tons. Ultimately, what that also means for the consumer is they get to knock out some of their $2,000 per heating season bill, right, by having that cheaper electric alternative. Of course, this needs to be coupled with the right rate structures. We need to make sure the technology is affordable, which may mean rebates and other elements and other policy actions to put it in people's hands. But the lifetime savings can be really significant, to your point. Plus the health benefits, right? I get really excited about building electrification for all of those reasons, but also the fact that burning fossil fuels in our homes is just not the healthiest thing for us in our communities. And so that's just another thing to look forward to. Well, my cooking is all unhealthy no matter what you do. So I'm probably a lost cause, but yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been talking about the infrastructure bill. That's a law that's already passed. But what are some other provisions within budget reconciliation or other bills altogether that you're paying attention to this year? And specifically, what are some of the things that you think need to get done ahead of the midterms? Yeah, so we have always viewed the infrastructure bill and reconciliation as two pieces of the same overarching plan, which is a a view that I think is shared by many advocates as well as by the administration. Um, The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act invests a lot of public money in clean energy, but one really big piece that's missing is the piece that's going to pull in a lot of private investment, and that's the tax incentives. Um, And so we see that as being, you know, really core to the clean energy investments in the reconciliation bill. Clean resources like solar and wind are already the cheapest new generation to build on our electric system. The tax credits and reconciliation only make those resources cheaper, and these are pro-consumer policies. 
And circling back to the conversation we had at the top, I hope that the Russian invasion and the economic shockwaves that it sent around the world really helped to crystallize the importance of this economic energy independence to policymakers. Making the transition to clean U.S.-made energy can help us be less reliant on unreliable foreign competitors and less susceptible to the price shocks those create. So in the same vein, these can be inflation-fighting measures. And I think that's you know obviously an issue that we're going to see being playing a really key role in the midterms. Rising gas prices are a big driver of the inflation we're seeing. It hit a 40-year high last week. And if policymakers want to combat inflation, transitioning us to price-stable, affordable, and clean energy for our power grid and our transportation is key. And if we don't do that now, in the face of these problems, then when? Well... Despite our best efforts, we can't totally avoid the reconciliation discussion, <laughs> all roads to reconciliation, although that's not entirely true because there's lots of ways these these ideas could end up passing. But Leah, that was a really great summary. Appreciate you connecting the dots for us on the infrastructure bill and how it relates to the issues of the day. Great. It was my pleasure. I was happy to be here. Thanks so much for being here. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember to fill out that Political Climate Listener Survey and enter to win that $100 Amazon gift card. Also, don't forget you can follow along with Political Climate at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate on Twitter. We're also on Instagram. You can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook too. So reach out, let us know you listened and give us your feedback. We always welcome it. Thank you to Maria Virginia for stepping in and co-hosting. And thank you to our editor, Kyle McDonald, whose birthday is this week. Happy birthday, Kyle. Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Julia Piper. We'll be back again soon.